0: Welcome to The Arrogance of Infinity, Tales of Transition from the Industrial to Technology Age. This is Part 6, Another Cup of Earth. Charles Foster, Citizen Kane, had his rosebud. I have the summer of 72, and one early morning in the upper back bedroom of Mom's family farmhouse. I was awakened that day by the scent of an approaching rain, and the sound of maple tree branches slapping the windows and clappered siding. I raised my head from a feather pillow and rolled out of a cast-iron bed with creaky springs to look for dark clouds that weren't there. The gentle breezes had tricked my sense of smell by pushing through old, dusty screens. I grinned at the weather, and the tree, as I glanced down into the cyclops of a tree hollow within the maple, That was a maternity room to countless critters. I watched a tire swing with white sidewalls slowly turn with the breezes like a weather vane, then looked up again at the clear blue sky. I knew it would be a perfect day. In 1972, Grandma Aylshire worked at Wright's Hardware Plumbing and Heating in Carthage, Illinois. Air conditioning wasn't yet much of a thing. Wright's was painted in cursive on the big front windows of the three-story brick building that had been part of the town's character for 60 years. The Main Street store was on the north side of Courthouse Square, in the seat of Hancock County. Graham, like Grandpa Pickett up in Minnesota, would occasionally parlay her job into life lessons by taking me to work with her at the vintage hardware store. Her boss, Fred Wright, was a short, stout man with a bit of a lisp and a demeanor that varied from jolly to wise. He called every man Bud and most women darlin', and he'd give me a ride on the floor-to-ceiling ladder with steel wheels that rode on iron pipes from the back to the front of the store. We'd glide past columns of hardwood drawers that were stacked 12 feet high along each side of a 30-by-60-foot room. They were filled with nuts and bolts and thingamajigs, and to me back then, the place felt bigger than a Home Depot. After the ride, Fred would hand me a push broom and allow me to sweep the well-seasoned floor with magic crystals that oiled the oak and grabbed dust and dirt at the same time. The summer class would get boring after the sweep, so I'd stroll across Main Street to begin a self-guided tour around town. The Hancock County Courthouse is a classic building of Indiana Bedford limestone with a roof of red Spanish tile. Lady Justice holds her scales above a white cupola with seven-foot-tall clocks on all four sides. It's as handsome a county courthouse as you'll ever see. There's a large boulder with a plaque in Courthouse Square that marks the spot where, in October of 1858, Stephen Douglas preached the virtues of popular sovereignty on a state-by-state basis as the best way to decide the issue of slavery. Eleven days later, at the same spot, Abraham Lincoln declared the slave trade to be wrong in every township, county, and state in our divided nation. Douglas won the senatorial election in 1858. In 1972, the boulder in the square was covered in bird shit. I was 10 years old for half of that year. I wore bib overalls and liked to chew on long weeds in imitation of my idol, Huck Finn, from just down the river in Hannibal, Missouri. The bibs cost more than a piece of cloth should have, but they were durable, and Graham justified the expense. Out on the farm, that's all I'd wear. She'd make me add a t shirt and shoes when we went to town. As I wandered around Carthage that day, it didn't occur to me that the quaintness of small town America was in decay. I thought I was just getting old. Not on life support, certainly not dead but I wasn't oblivious to the disappearing landmarks. There was only one restaurant remaining on the square. Grab a snack. J.C. Penney had closed, Jenkins' Billiard Parlor was turned into a trinket boutique, and the Woodbine Theater's last picture show featured a kid in Wuthering Heights named Heathrow that Huck Finn and I would have punched in the mouth. The most critical retailer on the square for me, was Ben Franklin's Five and Dime, where I could buy penny candy if I happened to pawn a returnable bottle. In 72, Ben was still using bulk buckets of hard candy, gumballs, and jelly beans to tease little boys in overalls. After observing and loitering in the square, I'd occasionally take a three-block walk past a Baptist, a Methodist, than a Presbyterian church to drop in on the Mormon Visitor Center at the old Carthage jail site that was across the street from the Catholics' Immaculate Conception. The Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints, landed in Hancock County in 1839 and transformed the tiny town of Commerce into a city half again bigger than Chicago. The town sits on a bluff above the Mississippi River, where the Illinois border bulges west. The hamlet was renamed Nauvoo, which is Hebrew for beautiful place, and by 1844 it featured a glorious temple, formidable militia, and a population of 25,000 souls within the metropolitan statistical area of the day. Those would be Mormon souls, however, a brand the local Christians didn't understand too well. This led to a fair amount of defamation in county newspapers and, as often happens with matters of religion, lack of understanding brought about violence. The Mormon militia burned some presses. County officials jailed some militia leaders. Then an angry mob murdered the Mormon church founder, Joseph Smith, and his brother Hiram. In their rooms at the county jail. A few years later a guy named Brigham Young packed up the whole town of Nauvoo and moved it to Utah. In 1972, Mormon elders at the historic site were more than happy to accommodate a curious kid. I took the tour several times and retain a few life lessons to this day. A six-panel door has a cross on top and an open Bible on the bottom. James of the Bible reminds us there are no dumb questions. And, angry people of all races and creeds destroy and kill unnecessarily. On my way back toward the miscellaneous stacks of hardware at Wright's, I'd wander alleys in search of a returnable bottle and swing by Kibby's Hancock County Museum It has since been expanded, but at the time, Graham's cedar chest contained a more comprehensive historical collection. Fortunately for me in 1972, small-town business owners like Fred Wright and part-time floor sweepers had lots of flex time and were able to work remotely. He'd load me up in his 58 pickup truck with a wraparound windshield dragged me out to the county fairgrounds and the city dam on Carthage Lake, where we'd share history. He got to remember, and I got to learn. Independence Day celebrations at the fair once featured pigs on spits, yards of red, white, and blue bunting, three-legged races, and several heats of pacers and trotters at the horse track. In 1972, there was a weenie roast and a quarter-horse race. Fred gave me a tour of the stables and pointed to a harness racing buggy that was my great-grandfather's and still hanging in the rafters. I secretly wondered if I would inherit it someday. On the other side of town, where Granddad Ayleshire did his business, Livestock auctions in Carthage were reduced from twice a week to every other Friday. And people began to suspect Marguerite Hopkins at the Sale Barn Cafe of using a store-bought mix for the gravy on her roast beef sandwiches. In western Illinois and across the nation, landscapes were littered with the reminders of the previous century. Stagnant windmills and oil derricks, Piles of byproduct from played out coal mines, deserted homesteads, ravines, and hollows strewn with horse drawn manure spreaders and carbureted automobiles. The Ayleshire Farm, 302 acres of stereotypical American family farm, remains down along the banks of Little Creek on the western edge of the St. Mary's Prairie. The farmhouse was a prairie mansion built in 1900. It had a wraparound porch with a deck on top and by the 1940s it had been modernized with electricity, indoor plumbing, and was cooled by the shade of a massive maple. Across the gravel road and a couple acres away from the main house was another smaller home for the foreman and his family. The farm evolved for 70 years to boast a summer kitchen garage, chicken coops, two red barns, chutes and corrals, a drive-in scale house, hog feeders, livestock shelters, and several corn cribs. By 1972, the foreman's house was occupied by folks too poor to live in town. The big barn was set for demolition, and the sagging corners of the smaller pony barn spelled its fate just as clearly. The last remaining corn crib was nothing but shade for the swine, and the only weights and measures in the scale house were tons of dust and a wall full of tools to solve challenges that no longer existed. In two April days that year, a bunch of men built a corrugated tin Morton building that would have fit inside the big barn. It replaced them all. All the stores on Courthouse Square, including Wright's Hardware, would close at five o'clock each weekday in 1972, three o'clock on Saturdays, and nothing but church doors were opened on Sunday. After Fred Wright and I had finished our work for that day in Carthage, Graham would drive back to the farm on hardtops, which are paved roads, and on a gravel shortcut. She yanked the wheel when a rabbit darted in front of her Ford LTD, but there was a slight thump. Graham stopped to check on the condition of the unfortunate bunny, then smiled like the Cheshire Cat. Perfect. Headshot, she said as she tossed her prey into the trunk. Supper would include another menu item. Granddad had already taught me how to skin and clean a rabbit, and was way faster at it than I. So he handed me a pail to go search for some berries while he dressed the rabbit and Graham started on gravy that was thick enough to be spread with a knife. On my way back past the cattle pasture to the creek and the hardwood timber where the berries grew, I'd cut through the old drive-in scale house that had become my Alamo of farm buildings. The doors were gone from the cabinet around the old Fairbanks beam scale and the rusted sliders were locked out of balance. The implements of bygone chores in the scale room included curry combs and bridles left over from the thirties when mom, auntie sis, and uncle Merle rode their personal horses Pat, Mike, and Rusty to their one-room Hickory Flats schoolhouse. To the east of the scale was a grain bin that once was filled with dusty corn or soybeans. We'd jump and play in the grain as if it were a modern-day ball pit at McDonald's. My walk back to the creek to fetch berries was about a half a mile from the scale house. I'd squeeze between two big doors that by 1972 had sagged into the dirt and wouldn't open and I'd climb a corral fence to stroll down a hundred-yard lane that was lined with a windbreak of Osage orange trees that produced lots and lots of softball-sized fruit called hedge apples. We wondered and tried, but never figured out a useful purpose for them. They were hard, heavy, and so dense the hogs wouldn't even eat them. The trees were ideal windbreaks and snow fences, though, short and scraggly, with lots of branches and easy to climb. A year before that trip to the berry patch, my brother Ringo and I climbed up among the hedge apples to lie on branches above above a mother sow, who decided it was time and plopped down in the shade to deliver her piglets. I was fascinated and turned to Ringo at one point and said, Wow, Mom wasn't lying. Mom never lies, he replied as he climbed down to save a piglet who was about to be accidentally crushed by the writhing sow. This is why they want them to be born in the special sheds, he matter-of-factly added as he crawled to the rescue. The hog feeder lot was a 20-acre rectangle of packed clay with a couple of rain-carved ravines that were miniature imitations of canyon territory out west and perfect for BB gunfights between miniature imitations of TV cowboys. Ringo was at an AAU diving competition in 1972, so there were no gunfights, just me and my perfect day. As I approached a herd of young pigs dining in the feedlot, there was a chorus of clang shots from the dropped feeder doors they had raised with their snouts. Every pig stopped eating to silently stare at me, as if I was a stranger who'd just walked into a small town tavern. Between the back of the hog lot and the cattle pasture, an orchard that bore no fruit, had become a tangle of trees and sticker bushes. Fox and coons, quails and snakes, would cut through the old orchard, but not a barefooted boy. The last quarter mile was on a makeshift road, where the only hazards were easy to see cow pies and purple thistles. As a little kid in overalls, who liked to swim in creeks and ponds, I'd barely flinch when a grasshopper would land on me with its sticky feet. The low-maintenance road dissected the cattle pasture on its way to Holland Cemetery, a site named for the family who first bought the farm after Native Americans vacated the region in the 1820s. Even though we have no family interred there, Granddad Ringo and I would occasionally repair the gravestones. The oldest we fixed was from 1836. For a man who, who knew firsthand of the final conflict in the region between the United States and the Native American Sauk tribe led by Chief Black Hawk in 1832. Mr. Hollinsmarker has since returned to the earth to join the man and his combatants. The cemetery sits about a dozen feet above Little Creek. The hillside next to the graveyard and above the creek isn't tillable but became productive cropland nonetheless. It's a web of brush and shrubs with enough access to sun, shade, and water to be a perfect berry patch. Blackberries came first in June, followed by raspberries in July, then gooseberries by August. Mulberries were around for most of the summer and we had several trees around the house as well. I recall telling my teacher back in Minnesota that we shouldn't sing the song Here We Go Round the Mulberry Bush, because it was wrong. There's no mulberry bushes, I'd insist. They're trees. I picked enough blackberries for the three of us, left a few ripe ones for the birds, and hiked up my overalls and crawled down the bank to wade in the creek. It was knee deep on a 10 year old and moved along quickly enough for a couple of bark chunk races from the rapids to the fallen tree bridge that doubled as a finish line. After the races, I'd scoop tadpoles to see if any had legs. Then I'd stroll back to the farmhouse for pan fried chicken and rabbit that tasted the same, green beans from the garden and Graham's gravy over white bread, followed by a bowl of cream and those berries. After supper, Graham would freshen a deck of playing cards with talcum powder for a few games. Then later, I'd head out to the tire swing to complete, to compete with myself in a game of swoop that began by climbing a stepladder as high as I could with the tire swing hooked in my free arm. Then I'd launch out over various sized toys like blocks and army men arranged in the dirt below. Points were compiled based on the number and size of items one could collect within three passes of the white sidewall tire over the playing field. I won every time. The perfect day would conclude the way it began, with my head on a feather pillow in a creaky cast iron bed. On November 18th, 1997, long after my strolls past hedge apples and the miracle of life to a batch of berries, the antebellum illusions of the Ayleshire farmhouse were crushed by a backhoe, then, like Charles Foster Kane's rosebud, reduced to ashes to make more room for the future. It was the melancholiest day of my life, I felt wimpy and turned away from my wife Mary Beth, to keep her from seeing my tears when I told her they tore down the farmhouse today. She spun me around and gave me one of the best hugs ever. Later that night, I got to thinking of how, sometimes in the 70s, industrial-aged Hancock County had become historic as in ago, prior, since, gone by. Carthage College ran off to Kenosha. A local girl named Colleen used to be Miss Illinois. Thompson's General Store in St. Mary was all out of soda pop and front windows. Trains stopped stopping in Hancock County. I made a habit somewhere along the line of tempering emotional losses of friends, family, and landscapes with reminders of the experiences of preceding generations. To American Indians, industrial was the least welcome of ages, and 1972 was one in 150 years of degeneration. There's a saying among the tribes of the region, Let me go back and take one drink more from the old spring. The current in Little Creek varies from Raging Torrent to Couldn't Raise a Nightcrawler. About 50 yards from the berry patch are the remnants of a berm that once was a bridge for the stagecoach that carried Lincoln and Douglas to Courthouse Square. Farther down the line, after spilling into the Lemoyne River, the creek makes anonymous cup-by-cup donations of topsoil to the great Mississippi Delta. A new age perpetuates technological and physical change in counties with no interstate highways. Addresses beginning with WWW replace rural fire numbers, and Courthouse Square in Carthage has been revived with resilience, bits, bytes, and URLs, where there once was hardware, durability, and the county journal. By the end of the 20th century, the souls of Indian chiefs and 19th century industrialists had colluded to create the communal economics of modern farming. The land that is the Ayleshire and neighboring farms would be picked clean of buildings and landmarks. Fences, corrals, and loading chutes were pulled, hedgerows yanked, and service lanes tilled in an apparent challenge to the sons and daughters of the computerized millennium to do what they may with this place, to create their own definition of a perfect day. The irony is lost in a cycle. The Potawatomi hunters and gatherers were not the beginning of Hancock County, any more than the oil-burning farmer is its end. Progress and evolution find every corner of the globe, often taking two steps back for every three forward. Somewhere in the process, the ages and eras, the causes and concerns, become melded into one more cup of earth.